And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. Now we're going to stop there. Because I'm going to emphasize the truth of what the Scripture is teaching us here. Again and again and again. The Bible tells us also over in chapter 1 that what God has put together no one can separate. The two shall leave their father and their mother and cleave together and become one flesh. Paul would reiterate this truth in Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 3. Jesus would undergird this as a gospel picture completely in all the gospel narratives. And so, beloved, I want you to remember what it is we've learned. I want you to remind yourself and realize what's at stake here. That God's power is being revealed. Therefore, God is being revealed. You need to understand this about revelation, divine revelation. Divine revelation doesn't teach us facts. Divine revelation shows us God. I'm going to say that again. Divine revelation does not teach us facts. Every mind in the world can learn facts. Divine revelation teaches us God. He Himself alone will show us Himself. Have you ever been in a situation where someone assumes that you mean something different than what you're saying with your mouth? You say, this is a pencil, and they say, well, I hear what you're saying, but I know what you mean. No, I mean, this is a pencil. That's not what I think you're saying. And that is probably, for me, one of the most frustrating things that could ever take place in my life. Because my mind is already discombobulated. The way I think and process ideas and thoughts and words to get the stuff to come out of my mouth is a big task. Because it's not easy to stay focused. And by the mercy of God alone, I can actually read the Bible. But I did pick up the wrong set of glasses, so when I get down to the bottom of the page, I'm like, wait a minute, there's no progression here. See, just like that, off the subject. Now I'm thinking about my eyes. Now I'm wondering why y'all aren't all wearing your glasses. And I don't even know what time it is. The point being this. If we get irritated about that, not that God becomes irritated, but how do you think He looks at it when we twist His words? How do you think He looks at it when we're using the Scripture to circumvent His simple, divine purposes to reveal Himself to His people alone. How do you think God takes the, the, the attitude of humanity to twist His Word? And you're thinking, now where's the context here? We've already seen it last week in chapter 3. Did God say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? No, God did not say that. God did not say that. But the inquiry in and of itself, see Socrates or Plato, we don't know what Socrates thought because part of his philosophy was not to archive what you think. It doesn't matter. And then his students went, well, we'll show you, nanny, nanny, boo, boo. We're going to write everything down. But the philosophers of the age and ages have always come to the place of saying, what do you mean? Ask questions. Inquire. Become clearer. And then we ask questions of each other until we get to the point of being able to explain things in a revelatory way. And that's called common sense communication that anybody with a brain cell knows how to do from birth. But what happens when we get older? <laughs> we begin to impose our concreted ideas into our inquiry. 
So then we become like a, a, a detective. And a detective isn't looking for truth. A detective's trying to test his theories. The theory is, I think you did it, so I'm going to ask questions to make you think I know you did it. And if you really did do it, you're going to break. But we know throughout history that sometimes when people are hounded, they break and confess to that which they did not do. That's called terrorism. And that's what the serpent did to Eve. He asks a question to inquire of her knowledge of God's revelation to her and says, God, did He say you couldn't eat of any of the trees? And she says, no. We cannot eat of the trees in the center of the garden, nor shall we touch it, lest we die. We die. I mean, could you imagine parenting in the garden if they had not fallen? And eventually Cain and Abel would have sinned, disobeyed their parents. Probably wouldn't have, because if I were Adam, that tree would be my power, my power hitch. I'd plug it right into my parental terrorism. You know, your mama said if you touch that tree, you're going to die. Keep talking back. I'm going to throw you right in it. Get close. No, I'm, I'm not kidding. I will take you out. I mean, it would work, right? And we do that sometimes with our children. We have this proverbial tree of life that if we touch, they will die and we become the executioner, the judge, and the jury. But I digress to the point is we need to be reminded that what God has said is supreme. What God's Word says in context I want to say this, and I'm going to, say, I'm going to start bouncing. This is, my new, this is my new composition. My new drumbeat is going to start down this path, is that if it is not contextually derived from a specific and myopic context in the Scripture, it is not to be burdensome on the body. Logical inference from years of study is not divine revelation. I can make any argument work if I have a presupposition. What does that mean? If I have an answer that I want to get, I can make it work. Don't believe me? I have terminal degrees in research. I promise you, I can make it work. And for those of you who have done master's or doctoral work, you know you can come up with a way of finding someone to agree with your proposition. Nine out of ten dentists, you see, people have been doing it in marketing for years. Beloved, the devil is the first marketer, the devil is the first philosopher, and the devil is wiser than us all in his cunningness. Do not think that the human mind can stand against the prowess of that being. And do not think the human mind can see the attack coming when... The enemy dangles that philosophical food in front of us and said, just touch it. We need to remember this. We need to remember the thing that we're learning, which is the sovereignty of God in salvation. This is why Genesis is written. The creation of the world is to show us the sovereignty of God in salvation. Not biology, not science. It's irrelevant. It is absolutely irrelevant. I love science. I love all sorts of sciences. I'm not saying that science is bogus. I'm saying that the point of the Bible is not to point us to science. The point of the Bible is to show us God. God doing a supernatural work. The scientific exposition, according to Scripture, is man's philosophical way of approaching God in a higher knowledge. Nothing but Gnosticism, if I could say it that way, without the spark or without the power. But beloved, we've learned the point of this letter in these passages is that we see creation to show us God's sovereignty. That God said, let there be and there was, and it was good because He declared it good, because it was established for His purposes, and these purposes were for His glory to be revealed. That's what God's glory, the word glory means to be seen as you are. Glory. 
We have seen all that God is in the face of Christ. What is the very title, the very word, Messiah, Christ, Christos, is the holy and anointed one of God who will save His people from their sins, which we've seen promised, not only in the power of creation, that God Himself will separate light from darkness and call it good, not only in the creation of humanity, that He would create beings after His own image to point to the true God-man who is the only image of God in the flesh, and then also to show that creation in and of itself with the highest of intellect. There was no man with a greater brain than Adam. No woman who was more intellectually acute than Eve. Yet we, we, we somewhat sort them into this caveman-like mindset. These dumb idiots couldn't even stop eating fruit. Beloved, if God were to bring us into existence today in the world as He did Adam from the dust of the earth, we'd bite His hand when He breathes into us the breath of life. Like a rabid cat. But even in all of the greatest intellect, with the purest DNA ever existing in the world, the creature will always fall prey to its fleshly desires when tempted and when those temptations fall into practice, sin brings forth death. And death is separation. Separation from righteousness, separation from life, separation from God, separation from God's promises. The Garden of Eden is a picture of promises picture of provision, separation from blessing, separation from one another, separation from hope, separation from trust, separation from peace, separation from innocence, separation from unashamedness. Now they're naked and they're ashamed. They're scared. What God has put together, no man shall Separate. No man shall separate. But we as creatures have been in the separating business from the beginning. So the temporal picture of creation in and of itself, the very existence of the infinite universe, don't go there. I've spent a lot of time bogged down into, you ever rub your eyes so hard you see things? That's how my brain looks sometimes. I'm looking. I see colors. <laughs> Not in a good way. It hurts. Your brain hurts when you contemplate things you're not supposed to touch. Because there's no fathomable way to process that which is infinite. There's no way to process that in a logical way. The untouchable glory of the ineffable God who said, let there be in all things were. And I want, to, I want to measure it all. I want to check the plumb lines in every corner. I want to see. And I want to behold. But beloved, I behold greater than that by seeing the gospel. By seeing the creation of the world. By seeing the promises of God to provide for His people life eternal through His Power, not through ours. The creature separates themselves from God and it was His purpose to show the fragility and the impossibility of what man could not do. And He showed this in marriage. And He says that what God has put together, no man can take apart. God created the man and out of the man He created the woman. And beloved... He said it was good. He said it was good. And at the end of all of it, the end of the very first breath, God clothed them in grace. Now I want you to see that in a figurative way. God doesn't have grace tangibly Grace is not power. Grace is not 
substance. Grace is not a thing. Grace is the actions of God to His people for their redemption in spite of them. Unmerited life, unmerited blessing, unmerited love, unmerited favor, unmerited power, unmerited purpose, unmerited provision, and it goes on and on and on. The grace of God. God, by grace, drove them out of the garden. God, by grace, put them in the garden. God, by grace, gave them all the trees to eat. God, by grace, instructed them to work the garden, to tend it, to worship in it. But all of these things were temporary pictures. Don't forget, we've talked about how we go back to Eden. We're still in our flesh trying to find our way back in. And there is no way back in, for Eden is no longer. It was just a shadow. Creation is not eternal. It is just a shadow. Marriage is not eternal. It is just a shadow. But what is eternal? What is eternal in this life? Christ and all who are in Him. So beloved, if we sit together this day in the assembly of these chairs, and we are indeed in Christ found, submerged into the Spirit of God, we are the eternal family to which our lives and our marriages and our relationships and our homes are to prepare us to understand that we are the building blocks for the eternal picture, but these things are not eternal. Marriage, small, temporary, shadow to be seen with eyes of glorious perfection as a picture of the eternal promises of God. Think about it. Our family by blood is not as significant as the body of Christ. Yet our family by blood is our first responsibility unto the eternal relationships of the body of Christ. Isn't that something? A man who hates his flesh is odd. But he tends to his flesh. He feeds his flesh. He bathes his flesh. He grooms his flesh. As he should see his wife as his own flesh, he should take care of her. Christ says, Christ loved the church, the assembly, the gathered ones, the body as Himself, and He gave Himself as a ransom for them that He might present them blameless. Who were we in the context of Christ's death in the reality of our flesh? We were creatures rebelling, hating, finding our way into life, preparing our own clothing, thinking that we could present ourselves to God in such a way that what? That He would be pleased. Trying, not even haughtily. Very few people are haughty in their self-righteousness. They're very humble. They're very broken. Oh, I'm such a sinner. I'm going to do better. I'm going to strive. I'm going to march. I'm going to give. I'm going to sacrifice my all. And God, doesn't pres- God will not accept us as sacrifices. Except under the altar of wrath, which we shall burn forever. For it shall never be able to satisfy wrath. Christ satisfied wrath in His death. So, our most intimate relationships in life, the marriage, our children, our relatives, and each other, display a picture of the intimacy of God with His people. See, our culture says that church is a place you attend. That's a lie from hell. And I know that that's not logistically true. But it is a lie from the enemy. Some people say, well, I go to this church or I attend this church. Now, that's just a, that's just a practical way that we express ourselves. But if it is the undercurrent of our theology, if it is the undercurrent of our understanding, of our beliefs, we miss the point. We miss the point. We miss the gospel. 
And beloved, this is the first thing that happens to me. Life gets hard. We miss the gospel. And it becomes selfish gospel. Well, at least I'm in Christ. Praise the Lord. And it's never to mock praising the Lord. But beloved, that's platitudes. I'll serve you, Lord. I'll pray for you. I'll pray, Lord. I'll pray for those poor sinners. <laughs> See, that's not the attitude of someone who sits in the centrality of grace. That's the attitude of the flesh that's tempted. We should consider ourselves as lesser than each other. Our needs as less important than the needs of those sitting around us. Our desires as less necessary than those sitting around us. Our stuff and our lives as opportunities to give away and to die and to be poured out for those sitting around us. That is when we know we are looking at the picture of the temporal world and all of its purposes to point to the eternal power of God and redemption when the gospel sits forefront in our head. We see it that way. And beloved, it is the hardest thing to see. We get it in marriage in our culture because we become extremely jealous and possessive in marriage. And then sometimes in marriage we, we feel justified in our haughtiness toward our spouses because of the way they act, the way they speak, and the way they do, and vice versa. And so back to the point I'm trying to make is that what was our position in Christ, in our flesh. And don't hear what I'm... Don't pick apart my words. You want to be a philosopher? Move on down the road. I'm done with that. You know the gospel I preach, and if you charge me with a false gospel, you're a liar. You are a liar, a liar. And that's not for you, but that's for others who will listen to this next week. Beloved, there's only one truth. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the answer to that question. While we were enemies, God reconciled us to Himself in Christ. We weren't lining up for a shower. We weren't knocking on the door of the temple of grace going, okay, I'm ready to be cleaned. As a matter of fact, the disciples with Jesus refused to let Him wash their stinky feet, much less cleanse them from all their wickedness. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no place with me. You can't be my bride if you're nasty. You see? I'm not taking you into my daddy's house and say, look what I'm marrying. Boy, you better brush that girl's teeth. That's not the way it works. You've got to be clean. And so if we were sinners while Christ died for us with His mouth shut, doing the will of God the Father for the sake of His own name then we too in our relationships and our marriages specifically should learn that we die for one another by laying it down. Now, the good news is this. That's the command. That's the call. That's the, that's the, that's the goal. We're never going to reach it. Doesn't mean we don't strive for it and work toward it, but every day we try and we show, we try in our power, we fail, we fall on our face, and so we do by faith what God has done in Christ. A little bit here and a little bit there, a whole lot of failure, a whole lot of thankfulness. Thank you, God, you're not going to judge me for the husband that I am. Thank you, God, that my righteousness is not established by the Father that I am. Thank you, God, that you're not going to give me crowns based on the pastor that I am, or the teacher that I am, or the friend that I am, or the brother that I am, or the uncle that I am. Oh, now the grandfather that I am. I mean, thank God. That's so weird to me. Thank God that my righteousness in all of it forever has always been and will only always be Christ's righteousness. That's why it's called the good report, beloved. The good news, the gospel. Because it would be a bad report if, if it were up to us. Creatures separate. And even in the temporary, 
in the garden when everything was perfect. They, we could not keep ourselves in Christ. And even in the gospel picture of marriage, treat your wives like this, treat your husbands like this, let no man separate. It's like a, it's like a bomb. It's like we just get put in a blender and then some napalm gets in there and somebody smokes. Quit smoking around napalm. It blows up. I mean, you know, this is not good. But that's the world that we live in. That's the flesh. We burn things down and we destroy things. We separate ourselves and stuff in, in our flesh because we are tempted to do so. And only by the power of God does He keep us in His love. Does He keep us in the gospel? Does He keep us together? But it doesn't mean that we don't have the inclination to always destroy everything God has called us to. That is our natural bend. And when I say that, some people think, well, I'm just not that violent. You don't have to be violent to destroy stuff. I've seen very dainty, elegant ladies take out a letter and and fold it very neatly neatly and place it in the trash. I'm not reading that. (laughs) You see... That's destructive. God bless your soul. I'll pray for you. I mean, you know, we know what's behind some of those (laughs) comments. It's not endearing. But God has put together creation. God has separated creation in the way that it is good. God has promised light shall rule the day and the night. God has given His Son, Jesus Christ, for the sake of His people. Marriage is the same thing. Let no man separate what God has put together. Yet this, as creation, as the Garden of Eden, as the temple, as the people of Israel, all these separations to show the gospel, all these separations to show God's provision, all came with commands to do things according to the righteousness of God, of which man has never succeeded in doing, nor could they succeed in doing, so that all the time God's people, by divine work, would see that that our only hope is the righteousness of God in Christ. And the reason we see that is because we have been born again. We don't come to our senses and then God says, Well, praise the Lord. Uh, Praise me. I'm glad you showed up and finally came to your senses. No, we come to our senses when He slaps us upside the head with His love. Boy, if you don't get yourself straight. See, that's what our parents say. And sometimes as children, we go, What am I doing? What am I doing? I remember one time at Levi's house and we were little. And we were running and doing just like y'all's children do here. Running and doing. We run and do. That's what children do. We break walls and furnitures and faces and arms. And my stepfather says, James, come here. I knew I was in trouble. He says, turn around so I do a 360. He goes, turn around so I do a 360. That's literally what he said to do. He says, the other way. So I went the other way, 360. And now he was upset. He says, look that way. So I did like this. <laughs> what he wanted me to do is turn around the other direction so he could pop me real good on the butt and say, slow down, boy. But by the time we got to that, he was furious. Because he thought, I, was, I just didn't understand. In my best attempts, I couldn't even look the right direction. But God is not furious with us because He's not waiting on us to get the directions correct. He got it right before He ever said, let there be. And He placed us in Christ before we ever were in His plan and His purpose and His power. And then in time, He finally sent the Lord Jesus and the Lord Jesus died, satisfied all justice and righteousness. And then now and forevermore, the people of Christ will trust in Him because we have been born of God. We have been recreated. We're not remaining in our state of self-sufficiency. We are being given unto Christ, divinely working in us faith because Jesus gave Himself and purchased us. And marriage as a picture of that is first in life as a promise, as a covenant, as a picture, as a presentation of our relationship forever in Christ. So as 
important as marriage is, so the church is, so gospel faith is. And this is why we assemble as one body every week as often as we're able. And this is why the Word gives us clarity on the glorious redemption of our lives. And this is why the, gospel, this is why the Word gives us instruction on reconciliation at all costs. Because Jesus purchased us. And beloved, we are about the business of destroying that even today as God's people. Unknowing to us. We destroy that picture. We destroy that power. We, we, we mock it, sort of. But this sermon is not about us getting straight and putting down our mocking and stopping the destruction. Beloved, our flesh is going to wake up today feeling good and tomorrow feeling angry. We're going to have health tonight and tomorrow morning sick to our stomachs. We're going to have... We're going to have Jesus on the brain at lunch and then when we get to McDonald's or wherever it is we're eating, we're going to hate the guy at the window. And our perfection is only given to us through the credit to our account. Imputation is the word for that because Jesus Himself is perfect and righteous and His righteousness is ours. Jesus cannot fail. That's the point of this message. There are three specific points. And Jesus cannot fail. And just as marriage is to be held in high honor, so the body of Christ should be held in high honor. So the power of the gospel should be held in high honor. So that Christ should be held in high honor. Because if we diminish any of those, we are literally diminishing Christ. I'm going to say that again. When we diminish any divinely purposed and created institution, in any way, we diminish Christ. When we diminish the least of these of our brothers, we, do, we actually push Christ off a cliff. We're no more, we are, we're, we're, we're as equally as guilty as the Jews in the Gospels who decided to push Him off the cliff when He was preaching about Jubilee and redemption. And they said, praise you, praise you, praise you, for you preach peace. And He says, that's not for you. And they tried to kill Him. So let us not tear down what God has built. And the purpose of this sermon is to give us joy. To know that even though in our flesh we are always, even inadvertently and unknowingly, trying to tear apart what God has built, God will not let us tear apart what He has built. He will not let us be separated from Him. Romans 8, Paul is clear when he closes that text. It's almost just crazy to even say, Romans 8... You know, Romans. Paul teaches in Romans. And one of the main things he establishes there is that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. God Himself cannot separate us from Himself because He has brought us unto Himself and purchased us with the blood of Christ. Wrath is satisfied. Justice is... Justice prevails. Grace is effectual. God's mercy upon us in Christ Jesus is the power of God unto salvation, of which we are not ashamed. Let us stand and not be ashamed. So point one that we need to remember today is that God alone has the power to save. God alone has the power to bring together that which is separated. Only God has the power to keep it. But the stress comes for me is that throughout my entire life in ministry, not my entire life, but my entire life in ministry, working with other people who profess to be believers, it's amazing to me is how much in times of stress people throw away the Word of God. Be it by the Spirit of God and His grace alone, in the hardest times of my life, it is me and the Scripture alone that God brings to the table of reconciliation. Because I can think and I can ponder and I can examine and I can espouse and opine and everything else. I can, I can write poetry that never makes sense and think it's good. But yet all explanatory power, all revelatory power belongs to the simple revelation of God through Scripture. If we want to understand life and understand things, we have to remember that God alone has the power to reveal. God alone has the power to teach. 
But see, sometimes we think, well, Lord, I pray you teach so-and-so this, 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 and this, and what we're asking him to teach them is wrong. It happens. Well, teach these people that, you know, mitochondria, blah, blah. That's wrong. Teach these people this. Teach these... How about teach them truth? How about teach me truth? Lord, show me truth. Show me wisdom. And the wisdom comes back to the gospel. What God has put together, nobody can separate. No man has the power to separate. Even ourselves. We cannot tear ourselves away from the grace of God. It is a finished work. And I think we have to work out differences and work out misunderstandings and work out ignorance and work out haughtiness and work out sin and work out all this tearing up as the Scripture shows us. We have to work out these things in harmony with God and walk accordingly, rejoicing in the truth. Because that's the whole purpose of the New Testament is that we learn to walk accordingly in the truth by faith. That we don't tear down what God has established. I love how people blame God for tearing up what He made. I mean, you think about the knuckle-headed churches by the end of that century where John was writing to them and the pain that they went through. Pain. We got it made, folks. You think you're being persecuted in the United States? Come on. There is no persecution here. None. Well, I got a family member. I don't matter. That's not persecution. It's hard. It's not persecution. Persecution is an act of evil that belligerently attacks in order to destroy you physically. I don't see that. I see high tolerance, except for, you know, the semi-bougie evangelical idealism that doesn't work. You've got to have the right purse, the right shoes, the right car, the right sticker on the back of it, and the right translation of the Bible, and be in the right church, then you're good. That's culture club. Not the band. And that's, that's just what that is. It's not persecution. That's just, that's office politics on a larger scale. That's all it is. We've got it made, beloved. That first century church, John, through Jesus was writing to the churches. John was writing this stuff down. And Jesus was going to separate the church from their effectiveness, wasn't he? He said, I'm going to take your lamp out. Why? Because they've forsaken their first love. They put doctrine and... And, 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 and piety and presentation and public display before each other. And it's not a one or the other, it's a both and. It's important, but we don't not water the children and just feed them. Without water, even with food, you will be sick and die. We have to be about the business that God has put us in. And sometimes the alarms of our flesh go off and we seek our own way of understanding. We just start sowing our own fig leaves. And they go, no, 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 God doesn't allow fig leaves. Animal skins. So we start killing animals. We start clothing ourselves in law. We start clothing ourselves in judgment. We start clothing ourselves in distinctions. We start clothing ourselves in cultural distinctions and theological distinctions. We start labeling ourselves and clothing ourselves with theological labels. And all of that is wickedness. It's all wickedness. We clothe ourselves in history. We clothe ourselves in proximity of others who, who we know dress like we do. And the next thing we know, we're back in an Eden that's not an Eden. It's actually a death chamber. And all of them live, yield in death. 
But grace alone and God's resting power provides truth against all of our senses and our nonsenses. But these alarms that go off in my brain, what are they? What are they? They're fleshly fears. That's not discernment. That's not spiritual. Alarms. They ring inside my head and they drown out the peace of Christ. Oh no, somebody's upset. Oh no, somebody's... Oh goodness, what... Oh, eh, oh, that's where I live. That's sin. It is wickedness. Assumption is wicked. Judgmentalism is wicked. Oh Lord, I'm going to get this right one day and you're going to be pleased. And what would the Lord say if He heard me say that? Not a chance. And what? Getting it right? That or me being pleased with you. I'm pleased with you because my son's righteousness is upon you. Because I dressed you, boy, and I don't want all this nonsense you're trying to put on top of my clothes, but that don't match. And you look foolish. You cannot wear that hat to church, son. You know, the big hats at the ball games. Can you imagine if I had one on right now? Pop culture. It's funny. Big hat. How do we deal with this? Our flesh will call these distractions spiritual sometimes. And then we'll find proof texts in the Bible, what God did not really say. And then the next thing we know, we're living in a place of turmoil, which is not a promise of God in the Spirit. We want peace. Peace is found in Christ. So we trust in His Word and we hope in His promises. But I was thinking about it the other day, but I have liberty, I have the freedom. And then it came to me, freedoms, D-U-M-B-S. Some of you saw that on social media. My freedoms, though. I got freedoms. That's exactly what they are. Dumb ideas about our liberty and will that oppose Christ and oppose Christ's people. You realize that some of our liberties actually cause our brothers and sisters to have grief in their hearts, to lose their peace, to lose their focus on the gospel. And we think, yeah, but I'm right. I don't care. I don't want to be right. I want to stand in righteousness. Because me being right, logically, spiritually, biblically, a lot of times is really fleshly when I'm doing it at the cost of unity and the truth of Christ alone. And beloved, you can put whatever you want. I mean, there's the bowl. You just throw in it whatever is going on in your life. Whether you're scared of masks or scared of vax or scared of people who wear both or the opposite or the government. Well, I ain't, I'm not scared of any of that. That is so far down on my list of problems. What is that song? I've got 99 problems. I don't know anything about it, but I know this. 98 of them are my own problem. I'm the problem. If you've got a million problems, all of them are you most of the time. That's what happens. But there's only one solution. There's only one solution. And that is to rest in the gospel. And in doing that, we are trusting in the promises of God. Who He is, what He has done. But we're very quick to join the band of unbelief on principle, on matters of life. And beloved, we don't need to join the band of anything on principle. We need to continue to sit in the chorus of hallelujahs. The chorus of praise. To sit in the choir of the celestial to worship Christ and not sing the song of the world. There's a pun in that. Man cannot repair himself unto God. God alone, by His power, with no help from His creatures. And from this, we get assurance and perseverance. The first thing I was teaching there is that God alone can do it. The second thing is that from God alone do we get assurance. God says, no man can separate. We've seen it. We've seen Him do it all. We've seen Him make the promise in the fall. Everything... Everything. Christ is preeminent. He's first and last and all in between. God has promised to save His people. And in chapter 4, when we get there in a couple of weeks, in Genesis, you'll see that the first children are about the same business that their parents were in. Making much to do about what God has said and then showing how God separates them in His business. For his purpose. Same picture. 
different circumstances. So we have assurance. Sometimes we like to tear down gospel assurance. Why do we do that? Because we want to put ourselves at the center of it. Well, I, I know that I'm probably not saved because... And then we give this laundry list of reasons why we think we're lost. And that's what we do. And then we have others. Sometimes we do it to others, right? Well, you're probably not. Are you sure you're born again? I remember meeting a man one time about four years ago. It was introduced to him by a mutual friend. And the first thing out of his mouth was for me to give him a gospel testimony. We'll just leave it at that. And it wasn't a gospel testimony as in share with me how the Lord saved you, etc., etc., etc. It was, are you sure that you're in Christ today? I'm like, absolutely. And then he goes on to talk about this and talk about that and ask questions. And he says, well, I'm not so sure that someone who was in Christ would... Uh, Wear that, you know. You think it's absurd, but that's exactly how we do. I'm not sure someone who's in Christ could say that. I'm not sure someone who's in Christ would think that. I'm not sure someone in Christ would look at that. That could be things that we have freedoms to do. It could be things that we believe, things that we think. You know, we often think about a lot of stuff. But it doesn't mean that we trust in it. Sometimes we can think about things and dialogue with ourselves and others about things that just come to mind, but then we come back to what we trust in and it circumvents that. And then sometimes we think we trust in the things of God even, but yet everything that we think about everything that's going on is not showing that we trust in God. Are we lost then? No. Because our lostness and foundness is not about us banging on the door of the courts of grace. Our lostness and foundness is about God's Word finding us and showing us Himself. The finished work of Jesus Christ. Knowing that His people are certainly assured of salvation. Beloved, let's not tear down what God has done by causing others to doubt Christ. How do you know that's happening? I see it. I hear people say, well, I'm not sure I'm elect. What do I have to do? Well, there's no good news in the answer to that question, man. Because <laughs> it's about you, right? Has God given you rest in the report of His Son who saved His people from their sins? You don't figure out where you sit you rest in who, where Christ hanged. And though it was an earthly court, though it was an innocence, though it was an acquittal, He still died. Because the ultimate court that was satisfied that day on Golgotha was the court of heaven. The court of righteousness. The court of true justice with which man's legal system has never ever satisfied. Well, beloved, we have assurance. We have assurance. In Revelation 12, we hear John write these things. And I heard a loud voice in heaven. And it said, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Why is it that our assurance is such a wreck? Ephesians 6 say, says that we are fighting against the principalities of darkness. That there is a serpent in the ethereal realm that dangles all sorts of doodads in front of us. All sorts of doubtful things. Did God really say you were saved? Did God really say Christ's sufficiency is enough for you? Did God really give you faith? So on and so forth. And then what happens? That comes from the inside and then all of a sudden somebody else comes along 
being led by the same Spirit. You've been thinking about this lately? You've been wondering about this lately? Beloved, that's tearing down what God has done. This isn't spiritual conviction. This is fleshly disaster. The saints gather not so that we can be convicted to think we're lost, and so that we can be reassured that we've been found. Because otherwise, I don't want to gather together in a death session of depression. I don't want to sing. There's no call for us to sing laments. Let our tears be turned to joy. Let us do what's necessary to fix whatever is happening in our lives. But let's not let the reconciliation of those things, let's not let our joy be contingent upon the reconciliation of those things. I know it's hard right now. It's hard for everybody. But beloved, our joy is in Christ. We have assurance. Jesus Tells in Mark 10 and in Luke's gospel about the, you know, the, the rich young ruler. He, it's, it's recorded there. And he tells the disciples that it's easier to shove a camel, a full-grown camel, into the eye of a sewing needle. That is literally what the Bible says. It is not a metaphor in the sense of meaning something else. It's not, it's, not a, it's not alluding to any specific place called the needle where the camel has to squirm through. This is a needle that you would sew your sock with and an animal that would fill the stage. It is easier, Jesus says, to shove that camel through that sewing needle than it is for one who trusts in himself to get to heaven. And the disciples ask a question. Then who can be saved? Who's going to get there? If this rich young ruler with all his piety is not going to get there, if the Pharisees are not going to get there, if the, if the Jews are not going to get there, if all of the worshipers are not going to get there, if Abraham couldn't get there, who's going to get there? He says what is impossible with man is possible with God for all things are possible with God. That's assurance, beloved. You've heard me say this a lot, but faith is not a substance. Faith is not a thing in and of itself. It looks and it sees and it rests in what it sees and it sees and rests in peace and it has hope in what it sees. Faith does not save us. Christ saves us. Faith is knowing Christ saves us. Assurance is knowing Christ as revealed in Scripture, as Savior. And this assurance happens in the mind. And it happens in truth. And the rest given by the Spirit because of the new birth. And assurance is confidence, but as Paul would tell to the Hebrews, the true assurance of the believer is confidence, not of the flesh, but confidence of the flesh of Jesus Christ satisfying the wrath of God for His people. See, So true, confident assurance in the mind is firmly planted on the promises of God. So what God has put together in grace and power and mercy and love, let no man tear apart because we can't. We can never tear ourselves apart. When we attempt to tear these things apart, we cause doubt in the gospel truths. Doubt for the promises of God. Doubt in the power of God. We cause doubt in the provision of God. We cause others to doubt these things. And this must not be. And when we do these things, the effects of these things create new laws for us to live by. Create self-righteousness. Create fear. Create confusion. Create divorce amongst the church. Create lies. And burdens, undue burdens. And it undoes what the Spirit is doing by the temptation of the flesh in the mind of the believers. Don't believe me? Look at Galatians. Look at the Thessalonians. 
The Judaizers went into Galatia and the the Galatians were saved. They were regenerate. They believed the gospel. And the Judaizers were like, yeah, you believe the gospel, but have have you been circumcised? Do you not understand the distinction of circumcision and the mark and what it means? Do you not understand what the law showed and how it points to Christ? If you're not understanding this, you're not in Christ. And it caused confusion. It caused fear. It caused heartache. And Paul was not... He didn't beat around the bush. He got right in there. And then all of a sudden in Galatia, there were conditions for fellowship that weren't the gospel. Distinctions. Same thing in Colossae. Same thing in Thessalonica. Well, you know, you missed the rapture. (laughs) That's a joke. You missed the second coming. You missed this, you missed that. You missed the resurrection. And so a lot, of, a lot of the church were sitting on their hands looking at the sky going, what purpose is it? Being lazy, causing problems in the church because the needs of the church weren't getting met because people were so uptight about this doctrine that they were falling for, this idea and these conditions that they were falling for, and nobody was being served and the Lord was being ignored and mocked by their laziness, by their spiritual superiority in the name of dis, you know, whatever discernment, they were actually being disobedient. And so Paul said, if these men come to the assembly for their weekly food, let them starve. Because if they're not serving the body, they're not serving me. If they're not serving me, I'm not giving them anything. Isn't that the way it works? It's the way it works. Why? Because, beloved, the assurance of the church is important. I would say that assurance is the centerpiece of the flow of the river of existence as the body of Christ. We gather together so that we may be reassured each time that we may do what? Why do we come to the assembly? Okay, we got all the good Sunday school answers to praise the Lord, to glorify His name. Come on. What's the Bible teach us? To the praise of His glorious grace. How? That we may do the work of the ministry and serve one another without fail in spite of each other's sin and differences. We do what we're called to do, period. If we don't, we're putting on fig leaves. We're creating the idea that other people must also do the same. We are not holding marriage in high honor. We are not holding the body in high honor. Therefore, we are not holding Christ in high honor. And the list goes on down the road. But by the mercy of God, our assurance is not found in the fact that we are doing it right. Our assurance is found in the fact that God has accomplished it righteously in Christ Jesus. So therefore, we are not working out of fear. We are working out of gratitude. We are living out of praise to His glorious grace. How dare we say we're saved by grace when we sit on our butts and not worship in ministry by grace. It should not be. That's what Paul says. These things should not be. should not be named among you. Don't call yourself Christ's when we, what? Destroy the assurance of one another. Because even the body of Christ are called to serve their enemies. Wow, much less should we be serving our brothers. The third point, the final thing we talk about today is that through all of this, beloved, our assurance will wane. Our assurance will wane. And the reason that it wanes is because we're just like Adam and Eve. We're looking for ways of maintaining our understanding of God. And we've been revealed the simplicity of grace, but yet we still want to make more of it. Make more of it. We want to make it an academic or an intellectual reality that unless these things are evident in our comprehension to a certain degree, then I'm probably not in Christ. Well, your assurance is in you if that's what you think, not in Christ. Yeah, but you're talking too simplistically. No, I'm not. If you don't like that gospel, toodaloo! Because you can't fellowship with Christ. You see, you can't fellowship with Christ without simple grace. You can't fellowship with Christ if He hasn't washed us. 
if He hasn't presented us, if He hadn't closed us and brought us into His Father's house, present us as a bride ready to go. You can't fellowship. That's the simplicity of it. As we grow in our understanding, God will give us the reality of what the Scripture teaches and we will understand things more and more and more, but those understandings will never supersede the simplicity of grace. That it's by mercy alone that we even stand with the faintest knowledge of what Christ has done for us. And beloved, that is what's beautiful about this last point, is that God alone will keep us. He will preserve us. And it doesn't matter how good or bad or how well or poorly we live this life or how well we do as a church or as a family or as a parent or a husband or a wife or etc. It doesn't matter in the end because God will keep us. It does matter in the context of our worship and our joy, but it's not going to make or break God's purposes and promises. We will persevere. In the faith, in the truth. Jesus says in John chapter 6, even when we find ourselves tearing everything down, and we get through it all and we go, look what a mess I've made. God says, turn around and we're spinning. He just wants us to look at where, what mess we've made. So that we can turn around and look at Him, and He can say, I've made all things new. See what happens when you do your own deal? My promises are still standing. Your provisions are falling apart. In John 6, 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but I will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I don't have time to preach that because it would take an hour. <clears throat> But you know what it says. These people were here for the feast. And Jesus said He was the bread. And Jesus says that the Father will give Him His people and He will satisfy their hunger and their thirst. Jesus said that He will raise them up on the last day. That is the presentation of the church without blemish without spot, and without wrinkle. And nothing can take it away. So in the worst of your days, when you are ranting on the inside, when you are raging on the outside, when everything spiritual seems to have been washed off of you by a fire hose, the Spirit of God will subtly remind you of this truth. You will not be lost because you cannot be lost. And beloved, let us relate to the Lord in that promise. And let us relate to one another in that power. And let us take our relationships outside the church into even the world with that absolute solidarity. That we would not be shaken by the way this world is going right now. There is so much that could knock us off our focus. But nothing can knock us out of the hands of our Savior. Let's pray. We thank You, Lord, for Your sovereign grace, free and powerful. And thank You, Father, for using my mouth to teach. But Lord, as we all know, it is always prone to error. It is always prone to misunderstanding. It is always prone to mistake. So I thank You, Father, for being gracious to teach us to show us, to correct us, and to train us in ways that only You can do. Lord, may we be patient in trial. May we be wise in misunderstandings. 
Lord, help us to stand firm in temptation, Lord, and help us to, to, to be immovable in the shakiness of this world. And Father, there are relationships in this body that need great power and healing. Father, I pray that by the gospel you would show and bring reconciliation there. Lord, there are people in this body who are scared and fearful of things outside of their control. Lord, give us the peace that surpasses that understanding. Father, there are those who are hurt, those who are ill, those who are depressed, those who are addicted, those who are angry, those who are uncertain. So Father, together as You have equipped the church, Lord, help us to be gospel bringers, gospel bearers, and peace speakers to one another. That when we begin to sort through our faith and we find that it is inflecting upon our own ability, Lord, that You would cause each other to just remind one another about Your sufficiency. That You alone can bring life and keep life and You alone can grant the faith of that life You have accomplished in Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Thank you, church.